Well, good afternoon again, brothers and sisters. It is a joy for me to be with you, to be able to share from the Word of God. The passage I will be sharing with you from is, has become quite a dear passage to me over the past maybe three, four months. I truly enjoy it, and it is on my heart to share it with you what the Lord has spoken to me through it. Before we pray, before we read and pray, I'd like, you to, ask, I'd like to ask you a question. The question I have is this. What does it take to be a great soul winner? Have you ever thought about it? We understand that it is only God who truly converts souls, who wins souls for himself. But we also understand that God can use different means in order to bring people to him. For example, an unbeliever could be in a hotel room. He can pick up the Bible out of a drawer and read the gospel and believe. Someone maybe can listen to the song on the radio. He can listen to the gospel and he can believe. He can be converted. Someone may be driving on a freeway, seeing a billboard with the cross, with John 3.16, and he can believe. But from the scripture, we see that God normally uses a different way. He uses vessels like you and me in order to save souls. And God expects us to be a certain kind of soul winners. He expects us to be, have a certain heart, have certain knowledge, and certain will in order to be great soul winners for him. I want to ask you today, do you think you are a great soul winner? Please open with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and I'd like to read from verses 1 all the way to verse 13. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to, on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the, to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowds saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Our passage begins now. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man sitting, a man called Matthew, sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Please pray with me. 
Our Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We recognize our inability to do anything for you. We understand that even reading scripture, we've read this passage multiple times, and we still can't just get up and do it. We still need to think through it. We still need to process it, meditate on it. We need to feel it, Lord. And none of this we can do, especially getting up and doing it, to actually calling people to Christ. We can't do it. Lord, and I pray today that you would empower each and every one of us with the Holy Spirit to understand the word, to understand how we can understand sinners, how we can feel for sinners, how we can be compassionate for sinners, and how we can act on behalf of sinners and call them to repentance, call them to follow you. Lord, I pray that you would grace me to make this passage clear. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you want to be a great soul winner, you may say, well, where do I begin? Where do I begin? And I'd say if you have a class on evangelism and you know how to present the gospel clearly, I think that would help. I really do. If you have perhaps apologetics class and you want to learn how to defend your faith more convincingly, I think that will help. However, I'd like to take you to the very foundation of evangelism or outreach, to the very fundamentals. Like, what is it that you need in order to even begin thinking about evangelism? And this method or this way of soul-seeking and soul-winning is best represented by Jesus Christ himself. In fact, you will notice that there is no better soul winner out there. At the same time, we as children of God and children walking in Christ, we are to model him in every aspect. So today, I'd like to propose to you that if you want to be the most effective soul winner and be mightily used by the hand of God to win souls for Christ, you're going to have to follow Christ. You're going to have to watch how he does it with what kind of understanding of the sinner, with what kind of feeling of compassion toward the sinner, and what kind of a commitment to do the mission of calling. That is, I would say, the key of today's sermon. If you walk away, I'd like you to see that our understanding of need our emotions for the lost, and our purposeful actions of the mission should match those of Christ Jesus. Please take a look at me, with me at this passage. We understand that Jesus is probably in Capernaum. It's talking about his city. He lived in Capernaum at this time, and he is walking, and he sees this man by the name Matthew. The other two gospel writers name him Levi. We believe it's the same name because almost word for word, this account is recorded among three evangelists, gospel writers. Now, it says that Matthew was sitting in the tax collector's booth. So by profession, he was a tax collector. Now, you may ask, well, what kind of a tax collector? What does he do? He collects tax, okay? He is kind of like an IRS agent, but <laughs> much, much worse than that. To help you understand a little bit, you need to understand the history. You see, Roman government devised a system in which 
they could collect taxes from the nations which they have conquered. And what they did in Israel is that they would appoint a man. In fact, they wouldn't appoint, but they would sell this franchise. You say, listen, you pay us money, and we give you ability and protection to collect taxes for us. If you collect what we ask, good. Anything you collect over that, good for you. It's going to be your bonus. It's going to be your extra compensation. So the system itself was very evil because obviously the people are evil. And people who would actually buy this franchise were one of the people who are really not worried about being a traitor to their own nation. You see, they would really take advantage of their own countrymen by making their countrymen pay while they're suffering under the bondage of Roman rule. At the same time, you can imagine how these people, like Matthew, they were universally hated by all Jews. You see, they were known to be dishonest people. They cheated not only their own countrymen, but even people who are rich. If a rich person comes up and he says, listen, but I don't, I don't want to pay this much. Well, the, this tax collector, he would grab a bribe. He would take a bribe and not make this rich pay as much as he needs to. These people are known to be cheaters and liars. They were classed together with robbers and murderers. Even, for example, a tax collector could not serve as a witness in any court of law. At the same time, we see mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. He walks by him. He seizes him. And he comes to him. He says, Matthew, follow me. Now, Matthew probably has heard about Jesus from before. He probably heard him preach. He probably heard how he does miracles. The Lord may have even uh, drawn him to Christ. And when Christ comes, he responds. He gets up, leaves his tax collector booth, and follows Jesus. It truly is, speaks of the magnitude, the compassion of God, the grace of God, how he can transform the worst of the worst. You would say, listen, Jesus, couldn't you pick someone better than this? No, he on purpose picked Matthew, who is the reject of the society, and saved him for his glory. The same Matthew becomes not only his follower, he becomes his disciple and the apostle and the writer of this gospel that we're reading now. So Matthew now takes us to the second scene. Matthew takes us to the dinner or the feast. Matthew himself, now Matthew, as he writes, he doesn't clarify that, but Luke does. Matthew takes Jesus, his disciples, to his house. And he throws a big feast, a big reception for Jesus in his house. And all of the three, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, they all refer to the fact that many people, many tax collectors, and many sinners show up. Great crowd. And it says that you may say, listen, well, Matthew, obviously, he brings his whole gang, <laughs> his partners in crime, his tax collectors, and he brings other sinners. By the way, when it refers to sinners, it speaks about people who didn't care about the law, didn't care about religion, they just... They just cared for their own lives, like an unbeliever today, let's say. And these sinners and tax collectors, they show up to Matthew's house. And it says that there were many of them. 
Mark says this, and they were following him. So it's not that just Matthew calls his buddies and say, by the way, there's going to be Jesus in there. They were following Jesus, these tax collectors and sinners, and they naturally walk and come into Matthew's house. At some, for some reason, we can see that these people were attracted to Jesus. And I believe that the, these people, they were flocking with him because they felt the truth of his promise. When Jesus says, all that Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. John 6, 37. They knew. When we come to Jesus, and we open our mouth, and we say something to Jesus, and when he talks to us, he's not going to kick us away. He's not going to kick us out of the house. He's going to be with us and he's going to serve us. Imagine this house is filled with tax collectors, sinners, probably robbers. This guy robbed someone. This guy murdered maybe someone. This guy cheated someone. Many of these people, tax collectors and sinners sitting. And Jesus and his disciples are having a meal. They're eating together. And Matthew tells us, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? You see, Pharisees, by the way, I don't think they even walked into the house. They were kind of walking by, peeking in there and saying, unbelievable. This guy who claims to be the son of God, who claims to be righteous and holy, he is sitting and doesn't even care that he defiles himself pollutes himself with these filthy people, sinners and tax collectors. That's what he meant. That's what they meant. And Jesus gives us an answer. He gives us an answer and he gives us three statements. And these three statements will serve us and reveal to us what is at the core of a soul winner. These three characteristics will present for us the most effective tool in winning souls for Christ. I believe each and every one of us needs to grow in all three. But you will also see that if you don't have one, your soul-winning experience may not be very good. If you have two, you will probably not be as effective. Jesus Christ was a model in all of these three, and we're going to go over them in just a moment. And I'd like us all, as you listen, to check Where is it that I need to grow? What is it that I need to understand here? Number one, Christ-like, because Christ the example, Christ-like soul winner knows the need of a sinner. Jesus says this, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. You see, Pharisees saw everyone as sinners. Everyone as sinners except for themselves. They saw themselves as the most perfect, almost perfect, definitely worthy of God's approval, definitely worthy of approval of men. They were true legalists. They considered themselves as righteous. They have made up a set of rules. They said, listen, we have scripture. We are fulfilling the scripture to the T. We also have multiple these rules and regulations. And we are, look at us, that we are so good at fulfilling them. They said, listen, if I can do this, this guy can do the same. This tax collector can do the same. He can clean himself up, get right with God, and come and follow me. 
You see? So that's what they were doing. On the one hand, they were supposed to be physicians. They were supposed to be preaching confession, forgiveness of sins. And at the same time, they were really good at diagnosing. They were really good at condemning and separating themselves from them. Now imagine this example. Let's say you develop sickness, perhaps infection of some sort of. You're getting sick. You're running a fever. You have body aches. It's throbbing. You come to the doctor, and you show him your wound or your local infection or whatever it is, and he looks at you and says, what in the world? Where did you get this? He's grossed out by your own sickness. And he looks at you and says, listen, why don't you go clean yourself up? Why don't you go get rid of this infection and then come back to me and I will teach you how to not, never get that again? And you would look at him and say, listen, what kind of a, what kind of a doctor are you? Where'd you get your license, right? Now, that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. First of all, they never understood and they never recognized their own need for salvation. Because they were perfect or almost there. They never needed Christ to forgive them their sins. They never needed a true physician who would bring them to repentance and give them salvation and joy and peace. And if they don't need it, why would someone else do why would someone else need a physician? You know, we are not very far from these Pharisees. You may say, listen, our theology is right on. We don't believe in the religion based on works, right? We believe that we're washed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And yes, we do. We do theoretically. But I think practically, we fall short. We sort of fall off the wagon a little bit. I mean, just evaluate yourself. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for the past 10 years, maybe 20 years. And you're looking back and say, listen, I, I've done pretty well. I've done pretty well. In fact, I don't think I even started off that bad. I've had some heinous sins. I don't do them anymore. I have some noble, respectable sins, but who doesn't? You kind of sweep them under the rug. You forget where you came from, first of all. You forget where the Lord has brought you from, so you think that you're all right. When you and I fall into that temptation to think, to give credit to ourselves, guess what? We can't look at someone who's hurting, who's struggling, and say, you know what? I was there. I know exactly what he, know, what he feels. I know exactly what he's going through, and there's no way he can get out of that mess because I couldn't. You see, the Bible tells us, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That was naturally us beforehand. Some of us are still struggling with some of these things, right? He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
our religion, we understand this theoretically. We're right on, but practically we forget. We think we got here by our own means, and we don't need Jesus anymore. Sometimes even in our sanctification, we come up with a list of do's and don'ts, and we say, well, here's my list. And then we start juggling the items on that list. Okay, if I read the Bible this much, if I pray this much, if I do this, if I wake up in this, you know, if I, if I say this, even if I witness to this person, that's on my list. And then how do we juggle? We say, well, I can reach this, I can reach that, so I'm going to put it on the first priority. That is the most important for me. The other ones are not as important. And we create our custom list, and we say, you know, in fact, I don't need Christ. We obviously don't say this. We obviously don't even think straight up the thoughts that I just described. But we do practically lean towards that because it's natural for us to take pride and to be proud and take credit for what the Lord is doing in us. We have to see ourselves as a needy people. We have to see ourselves as dependable on Christ for every breath, for every good thing, for every good fruit that we can produce. We have to understand our inability and we have to understand dependence on Christ for that. You see, you have to see yourself as that sick man. You have to see yourself as that person who's running a fever, having body aches, having open sores, sitting at the ditch spiritually, needing a physician. And unless you do, you cannot help someone. You cannot. You will be just like a Pharisee who says, I'm doing fine. Come on up to me. That's number one. I'll read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He speaks about humanity. When we come to people and we say, listen, you can do this. You know, I've done it. He says, I have seen some men who said that they were perfectly holy. And I could almost believe that they could not sin. I met one of these perfect brethren once. There was no humanity in him. I like to see a trace of humanity somewhere or other about a man. And people in general like it too. They get on better with a man who has some human nature in him. Human nature in some aspects is an awful thing. But when the Lord Jesus Christ took it and joined his own divine nature to it, he made a grand thing of it. And human nature is a noble thing when it is united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those men who keep themselves to themselves like hermits and live a supposed sanctified life of self-absorption are not likely to have any influence in the world or to do good to their fellow creatures. Brothers and sisters, remember where you came from and remember who you are. We are sick people in need of physician. Unless you understand it with your mind, you cannot be effectively used as a soul winner. Well, let's say you understand. Let's say you, with your mind, you understand, listen, I am a wretched man. I can't do anything on my own. 
He has brought me from the lowest point. He brought me here. What else do you need? Number two, the soul winner reflects Jesus' compassion. He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Jesus, the greatest physician, the greatest teacher, he gives him homework and he says, listen, you guys, why don't you go and learn what it says? Learn what it means. Because they exa- knew exactly what it says. I'll tell you, those Pharisees and scribes, they would say, oh, he's quoting from Hosea chapter 6. There were no chapters then, but <laughs> they knew exactly where in Hosea that is. They knew exactly probably how many words the book of Hosea has because they were that crazy about the word of God. They were so meticulous that every single letter was super important to them. They would transcribe and rewrite that word and they would memorize like no one else. At the same time, they never even understood the meaning of the text. And this is something where I'd like you to open to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, I'll give you a minute. Now, the verse he's quoting is Hosea 6.6. And I'll read it as it says in NASB. For I delight in loyalty, which as Jesus quotes it, he writes as compassion. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This word loyalty, most commonly it's translated as loving kindness. You know this word. For loving kindness is everlasting, right? Loving kindness. And it's most commonly described the covenant love that God had with his people and toward his people. He says, listen, I will love you with my chesed, with my loving kindness. I will always love you. And you know what? If you mess up, I will still love you because I have this committed, committed love toward you. And no matter what, I will still love you, right? This love, this hesed is also used to describe his love towards the entire creation. For example, in Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, you don't need to open there. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. To whom? The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. So he is always showing compassion and love to the entire creation. More so for his own people, especially for his own people, but in many ways, even today, by sending us rain and sunshine to every human being, to evil and good, right? We know that. Another way this word hesed is used, is to describe faithful or faithfulness or devotion to a relationship. To show hesed is to show kindness or compassion, to act in a loyal, loving way to a person. This is true of kindness in human relationships and of the kindness God shows to us. So when God uses in his scripture, in the Old Testament, the word hesed, he's basically saying, listen, 
I love you with this love. At the same time, you are to love your neighbor with the same love. You see, one cannot be apart from the other. And to prove you that, just flip a page to Hosea chapter 4. And I'll read your first and second verse. He says, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitant of the land. Because there is no faithfulness or kindness. This word, loving kindness, hesed. No faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. See, in 6.6, he says, you are not loyal to me. You don't have that loyal relationship of love toward me. How do I know that? Look in for two. Because you hate your neighbor. You commit murder. You steal. You commit adultery. You deceive people. Therefore, there is no loving kindness in you. There's only loving kindness on my side. Notice that verse 6-6 and 4-1 both relate to the knowledge of God. There's no knowledge of God in 6-6. There's no knowledge in 4-1. You can immediately tell that the true knowledge of God will always come with hesed. If you truly know God, let me tell you, if you truly know God, that means you came to know his hesed, his loving kindness. That means you have experienced his loving kindness. And if you truly have experienced his loving kindness, it would only be natural for you, a person who has the Holy Spirit within you, to express that loving kindness to the outside. If you say, listen, I can't be compassionate to these people. Well, maybe you're not saved. Have you experienced compassion? And if you have, then definitely you have the power or you have those feelings and compassion toward people who are unbelievers. That is given. Again, I want to show you that loving kindness, mercy, compassion, kindness of God, they are central to God. If you remember from Exodus chapter 34, when Moses wanted to see God, and then he says, he's gonna, I'm going to show you my glory, and I'm going to proclaim my name. Proclaim my name. Remember what he said. This is God proclaiming his own name. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Primary thing, compassionate, loving, merciful, kind. This is the God who we serve. This is who he is. You see, if you genuinely know God, that means you have come to know him. And you do. You can produce compassion. Not of yourself, but Christ can produce it in you. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burn offerings. Answering to Pharisees, he says this. You know what? You think you can meet my standard because you do A, B, C, and D? 
I'll tell you a proof that you don't actually even know me because you have no compassion for the sinner. You don't even know me. They will say, listen, we give so many sacrifices. We know from Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. They would say, we bring so much stuff. We give, we tithe, we bring so many sacrifices. He says, you don't love people. You have zero compassion for them. In fact, you're grossed out by them. You are afraid you're going to be polluted by them. Interestingly, the Pharisees didn't, did not even understand the meaning of sacrifice. You see, when someone was to bring a sacrifice, when someone was to bring a sacrifice, even the, the, the priest was to bring a yearly sacrifice, he would put the, the blood or sprinkle the blood on what? On the mercy seat. What does that signify? That he earned it? It signifies that the God who's full of mercy and compassion and love and loving kindness, this covenant love, he forgives you. He allowed the sin to go on to this animal and he forgives you again. This is the God we serve. This is the God we serve. We cannot not have compassion. Loving kindness is the core of relationship between God and man and is expected to be between man and man. This compassion for the lost led Jesus Christ to seek the sinners. Interestingly, that God, have you ever thought about that? God never chose condemnation to bring someone to repentance. You want to see this? In Romans 2.4, he says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see, it's not even fear. It's not even hell that brings people to salvation. It's his kindness. He chose kindness to bring people to repentance. He uses something that's called good news, right? We use good news to bring, euangelion, good news to bring people to salvation. You may say, well, does compassion, does mercy, does love, kindness, does it negate the truth? Does it negate the truth? Did Jesus water down the truth and says, come on in, you guys, I love you all. You know, forget, you know, we're not going to mention any sins. You know, I'm going to be Nice to you. <laughs> Did he do that? We know reading through scripture, he has never neglected to point out sin. He would say, get up and walk. Your faith has saved you, right? Sin no more. Sin no more. Sin no more. He came to call people to repentance, right? You may say, that love and compassion is what makes the truth complete. You see, you can present the truth in many ways. You can be moved by your conscience and say, you know what? I think I need to witness to that person. And you have zero compassion to that person. And you can 
share the truth with him, would that truth be complete? With your words, it will. It might. But if you have not shown it with your heart and feelings and of, of compassion and love for the soul that is on the way to hell, it is not complete even. You know, compassion, some of you may have a different understanding. Well, where's compassion and where's discipline? Where's love and where's discipline? And I'll tell you, they are not mutually exclusive. We read that from Hebrews 12. This is how we preach the gospel to our children. Do we stop loving them after they disobey after six time? Absolutely not. We love them so much that it moves us to even discipline. We even cause them some pain with love and we tell them, I love you. I love you and that is why I'm causing you pain so that you could remember, that you could turn away from your sin, right? You may say, well, how much? How long? How long do I need to keep telling this man that he's in sin and he needs to repent and I've been compassionate to him and loving? How long? I'm already getting frustrated with him, right? <laughs> how long did Jesus wait for you? How long did he call you for? How long did he was compassionate and loving and merciful to you before you came to him. For a long time, for a long time, mercy triumphs over judgment. We read it in James 2.13. Jesus was truly the compassionate one. Even in our passage, even reading through the gospel, Jesus has walked a life of compassion like no one else. He's the greatest example. I mean, he was compassionate. He's looking at people. They're hungry. They're just hungry. Jesus may say, listen, well, they're not, this is not true hunger. If they would be spiritually hungry, I would be, no, they're hungry. They want to eat. He feels compassion for them. He feeds them, right? He comes to the tomb, and there's Mary and Martha and Lazarus' death. In fact, he was responsible in some way for his day. He delayed. He orchestrated this whole thing, right? And they're weeping. Martha is crying. Mary is crying. You know, sometimes your wife may be crying and you say, honey, just come on. Will you stop? Everything's going to be fine, right? <laughs> Jesus knows that within minutes he's going to raise this man. And what does he do? He's moved by compassion and love for these women. And he weeps because he cares, because he loves he feels emotional pain. He shares that emotional pain. He loves people. I'll tell you, many of you work in the medical field. This was a couple years ago. Jan asked me, well, do you feel compassion for people in your world of medicine? And I tell you, it is hard. You know how hard it is. You see 20 plus patients and each one of them comes with one complaint. Pain. It hurts. Everything hurts. And the next patient, and you're saying, listen, I know it hurts. The last 20 people, they came with the same stuff. You know, they all hurt. And you pray. I have to pray, Lord. I'm getting so dull. I'm getting so callous to hear people's complaints because I don't feel, feel compassion anymore. You know, someone comes from surgery, and they're in excruciating pain. I know. In two days, he's going to be a happy man. It's not going to hurt as much. 
right? And this is what you tell people. Listen, it's going to heal. It's going to, time is going to heal. Everything's going to be fine. You know, you have this trouble. It's going to pass. Don't worry about it. Jesus felt compassion knowing that everything's going to be fine 15 minutes from now, right? When he's going to raise that widow's son, the only son that she lost. He feels compassion for people. Do we have compassion for the lost? Do we have compassion for the lost who need Christ? If you understand with your mind that they need Christ, there is no other way that they can come to him. They need that physician. Now, if you have compassion toward people who are lost, that is still not making you the great soul winner. You need another character of Christ. He says, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I did not come to call the righteous and sinners. This third characteristic of Christ-like soul winner is that he is committed to the mission. He's committed to the mission. You have to be all in. You can feel, you can know that they need Christ. You can feel all sorry for them. But if you don't get up, And when you don't speak up, and when you don't express the truth to them, you're not perhaps effective. God can use you. Even your evil motives, God can use you in different ways. But if you want to be mightily used by God for his glory, you need all three. Jesus says in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He later says, I must preach the kingdom of God. He came, he had a purpose, he had a mission, and he did exactly what he meant to do. He was knowledgeable in his mind, he was compassionate with his feelings, and he was perfect in his will. He did what he was commissioned to do. Jesus proclaimed. What did he do? Jesus proclaimed. He proclaimed the gospel. In Mark 1.14, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. How eager are we to proclaim? How eager We're more readily to proclaim our biggest purchase that we made last week. Or maybe our vacation that we were at. How eager are we to proclaim the good news to the people? In Luke 19.10, this is from the story of Zacchaeus. A guy worse than Matthew, by the way. He says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus not only came, he sought. It speaks to you that it's not a passive exercise. It is not a passive mission. Listen, I'm just going to sit around. Someone asks me a question, I'll answer them. Jesus sought specifically, like Matthew, like Zacchaeus, like other disciples. Some people came. They've heard about his teaching, but many he actually sought out. It's an active, active mission that we are entrusted with. Jesus did not sit around in his town of Nazareth or Capernaum. He went from town to town. He distributed his disciples 
to show, to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Let me ask you this. Do you search souls for Christ? Do you actively pray, Lord, I'm going to be at my workplace. I'm going to be at the store. I'm going to be at this gym. I pray that the man who sends you send me or the woman who you send me, I pray that you would use me. Do you pray like this? I encourage you to pray. God is always faithful. Pray intently and you will be on the lookout. You will be seeking that person to share the gospel with them. Imagine, even in your home, we all, many of us have pets, right? Imagine that you lose a pet, a dog or a cat. You go to the park and you lose, your dog just runs off. <laughs> and you run after the dog. And you call the dog by name and the dog is not coming back. What do you do? Oh, I know what you're going to do. You're going to go and you're going to knock on the doors of the neighbors. You're going to say, have you seen my cat? Kind of looks like this, a little white and black and puffy, you know, and a little chubby, this, this tall, right? You're going to go, and no, we haven't seen you. You're going to go house to house. You're going to call. You're going to come back to the same park later that day. Maybe he ran back. Maybe he came back. You're going to call on the name again, right? It's your pet. <laughs> you're going to go home. You're going to print out pictures of the pet. You're going to go outside. You're going to print. You put a, all those pictures to the poles and the mailboxes, right? You're even going to offer reward. If anyone finds your pet, you're going to pay him money. How much do we truly search for the lost soul that's on the way to hell? We become calloused. We don't care. You know, Pharisees searched for their disciples. Did you know that? In Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much as a son of hell as you yourselves. Pharisees, they even went around the world on sea and land to make a proselyte, but they said, you come and you follow me and you become like me. I'm going to teach you how to become like me. And they come and they sort of believe in this religion and they become twice as worse as they are. How much greater mission do we have? Because we say, don't be like me. I'm going to make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. Come, we will baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? We will teach you not what we say, but we we're going to teach you what Jesus Christ has taught us. What a much greater mission do we have? Do we have that truly? In Romans 10, 14, Paul wrote, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? I want to encourage you today, brothers and sisters. By the way, I don't think any of us excels in all three. I don't think any of us excels in one. <laughs> we need help. We need help in all of those three. And as you come and you pray, you say, Lord, help me to understand 
with my mind that I'm a wretched man. I need a physician. Help me to understand that people going to hell, they need a, a physician, Jesus Christ. Help me to feel that compassion and love and kindness toward them as I call. Give me that strength to make that step. Remove that fear. Give me that power of the will that comes from you alone to make that move and call him to repentance. Share Christ with him. Call him to follow you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your reminder today. Lord, we might be really good at wooing people from other churches and bringing them and sharing with them, Lord, what we have here. But Father, we pray that you would teach us to search for souls who don't know you. We pray that you would put it in our minds that it would be fresh, that they are in same need as we were and still are. We depend on you, Jesus Christ, as they need to depend on you. Lord, we pray that you would kindle that heart of compassion and love for these lost people. We pray, Lord, that you would give us strength to walk and to do so, to call people to repentance, to share the gospel with them, to be for them, to weep for them, to cry for them, with them, to be concerned, not even to fulfill our conscience, but, Lord, to truly care for these souls. We thank you. We praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.